welcome to the Cinematologist podcast. I'm Neil Fox, and I'm delighted to say I'm joined, as ever, by the inimitable Dario Linares. Hello, Dario. Uh, thank you very much, Neil. That's uh, a description that I will take. You know, it's, there's been worse. So, uh, yeah, it's good to see you. Really, really nice to talk to you. And, uh, yeah, really looking forward to chatting about this particular episode. Yeah, this episode is one that's been in the works for a while. And I think when people hear it, they'll know why, because I think that if nothing else, the labour of of it is is kind of apparent and inherent in it, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's well worth the wait, I think, and I hope that our audience are are receptive to what you've been doing over the last few months. Do you want to let us know what that is? Yeah, so if uh, anybody who follows the podcast might know that I've been talking about this episode called the Cinematic Voice, and it's something that I kind of had in mind for over a year, really, and it was just a sort of an episode that I wanted to do was on the back of our Knowing Sounds episode and then the Making Waves episode that we did that was about film sound. And I really wanted to get into this idea of what the voice does as as a tool and an effect and how it shapes the very meaning of, of how we understand cinema. Because I think sound tends to be taken in a sort of broader sense and isolating out the voice and looking at what that does, I think is really interesting. And a lot of... Uh, a lot of people that I spoke to about maybe contributing to the episode were very, very kindly gave up their time and their insight to be able to to contribute to this episode. So it's it's um, audio essay style with lots and lots of uh, familiar and maybe not so familiar film clips all edited together with uh, some really great, as I say, insights and, and analysis from some of the major film critics and scholars in the country, really. Yeah, amazing roster of contributions that you've pulled together and yeah I think we should just get straight into it because I think that there's so much to kind of pour over at the end and uh, I think people just yeah kind of soak up what you've done as a, as a kind of singular piece of work so yeah without further ado this is The Cinematic Voice. Ever since the movies began to talk the cinematic voice has shaped our perception of the filmic world. Al Jolson, in The Jazz Singer, not only instigated a watershed moment, but his first utterance would turn out to be prophetic. Wait a minute, wait a minute, you ain't heard nothing yet. We certainly hadn't. In the era of silent pictures, often considered the purest form of visual storytelling, the voice is a kind of absent presence. Its materiality not sounded but alluded to through the exaggerations of actors' mute mouthing and the functional necessity of intertitles. If sound transformed, or perhaps more accurately recreated cinema, the possibility of enunciation, of sounded thought, aligned the medium with the experience of human consciousness. A good, clean, honest whack over the head with a brick is one thing. There's something British about that. But knives. No, knives is not right. I must say that's what I think and that's what I feel. Not only that, the sounded voice expanded the audiovisual toolbox. Most obviously, the synchronization of voice dialogue to the embodied figure produced a sudden efficiency, that of informational exposition and individual characterization. And, in turn, hearing the image speak highlighted the essential lack of the silent or mute film. Paradoxically, the synchronization of image and sound is one of modern cinema's essential illusions. The voice does not come from the mouth of the character, but from the audio equipment in the auditorium, from your television speakers or your laptop. 
It is part of the dispositif, the configuration of space and technological apparatus that creates the cinematic experience. Such an acknowledgement underpins Rick Altman's often quoted assertion that sound cinema is a form of ventriloquism. I knew you'd come back. Not for long, my boy. Not for long. You're going to stop in jail for years and years and years and years. That wouldn't suit me. But you'll you tell them the truth. You'll tell them it wasn't my fault. What sort of dummy do you think I am? You shot him, didn't you? Yes, but that was in self-defense. He, he was trying to rob me. Tell that to the judge. Poor Sylvester. Such a charming fellow. Talking pictures soon became ingrained as the norm, and audiences became attuned to a seamless synchronisation. The synchronisation of voice to the physical body of the speaker, usually to enunciate dialogue, has created a vococentrism. In his 1990 book, The Voice in Cinema, Michel Chion, perhaps the foremost theorist on the role of sound in cinema, suggests that the voice is not the same as all other sounds. Quote, the presence of the human voice structures the sonic spaces that contain it. You know you don't have to act with me, Steve. You don't have to say anything and you don't have to do anything. Not a thing. Oh, maybe just whistle. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. It is in our nature to search for the human voice above everything else. Along with conveying vocal information, another key element of the voice is to materialise a character. An actor's performance of the dialogue is perhaps the most obvious way we might define a cinematic voice. Some commentators have pointed out that the man came to the door of his own free will. And we're supposed to swallow all that? It's all true. We needn't accept everything as true, all as necessary. Yet Bart's notion of the grain of the voice is as much a part of the DNA of a star's aura as anything we might be drawn to visually. A performance of dialogue is not to be burned into cinematic iconography through the mere content of words. It is the signature oral resonance that gives the linguistic basis its life. We must therefore appreciate the interplay between the acoustics of the voice, the very timing and structure of delivery, and the words spoken. But Xion makes a distinction between the voice and speech, the articulation of the scripted information, and, for that matter, from the soundtrack as a whole. Quote, In every audio mix, the human voice instantly sets up a hierarchy of perception. I know what you're thinking. Did he fire six shots or only five? Well, to tell you the truth in all this excitement, I've kind of lost track myself. But Ian, this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and would blow your head clean off. You've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? In this scene, from Dirty Harry, Clint Eastwood's gravelly rasp is also calm and precise. The carnage surrounding the failed robbery signified by the ear-piercing alarm, is counterpoint to Eastwood's supercool tone. Yet even in this scene, with a cacophony of sounds, the vococentrism is clear. When the voice is disembodied, however, we experience an even more profound sense of its power. Hello, hell, do you read me? Hello, hell, do you read me? Do you read me, hell? 
Affirmative, Dave. I read you. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Where the hell did you get that idea, Hal? Dave, although you took very thorough precautions in the pod against my hearing you, I could see your lips move. Aku's metra, as the unseen or as yet to be embodied voice, is everywhere in cinema, bestowing on the filmmaker a range of sonic movements inside and outside the image, a space of right, tension Hal. and uncertainty which the audio viewer has to negotiate. I'll go in through the emergency airlock. Without your space helmet, Dave, you're going to find that rather difficult. For Xion, Aku's Metra asserts ubiquity, panopticonism, omniscience and omnipotence. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. In this episode of the Cinematologist podcast, we will explore the complexities of the cinematic voice. We take Xion's lead in addressing the cinematic voice as a phenomenon in its own right analyzing its use and effect as a sonic presence attached to images in complex ways. We will address the relationship between the materiality of the voice and the politics of who gets to speak, how and who listens. As Tom Walker and Sarah Wright remind us, if the voice may seem ineffable, it is because it lends itself to a bewildering array of functions and metaphors. With contributions from nine leading film scholars, I invite you to an exploration of the voice as performance, as stardom, as articulation, as identity, as memory, as poetry, as horror, as power, and ultimately as an essential component of the cinematic experience. Our first contribution is from screenwriter Clive Frayne. Using the vocal performance of Sidney Poitier and Rod Steiger in Norman Jewison's In the Heat of the Night from 1967, Frayne explores how the actor's voice enacts a sonic dance between script and performance. Got a name, boy? Virgil Tibbs. Virgil. <laughs> I don't think we're going to have any trouble, are we, Virgil? No trouble at all. A scene from In the Heat of the Night, the 1967 film, and it's a scene largely between the two main characters, Virgil Tibbs, played by Sidney Poitier, and Sheriff Gillespie, played by Rod Steiger. What'd you hit him with? Hit whom? 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 What are you? You a northern boy? What's a northern boy like you doing all the way down here? I was waiting for the train. Well, now there ain't no trains this time of morning. Tuesdays only, 4.05 to Memphis. You say. <laughs> All right, you say right. And these are both incredible actors. But the thing that really characterizes this scene 
more than anything else are the vocal performances because this is not a scene where there is very much going on in terms of the actual physicality of the scene. I try to run a nice, clean, safe town here. A town where a man can sneeze and not get his brains beat out. You follow me? Yes. Why don't you tell me how you killed Mr. Cobert and I promise you you're going to feel a whole lot better. All of the dramatic meaning and all of the context within this scene, all the power of this scene, comes from the vocal performances. I was visiting my mother. I came in on the 12.35 from Brownsville. I was waiting to go out on the 4.05. And the thing that runs all the way through this is the just the repressed rage coming from both characters. They are both having to civilize and temper what they're really thinking. But their genuine frustrations and angers come out of every single line. Meanwhile, you just killed yourself a white man, just about the most important white man we got around here, and picked yourself up a couple of hundred dollars. I earned that money ten hours a day, seven days a week. Colored can't earn that kind of money. Boy, hell, that's more than I make in a month. Now, where did you earn it? Philadelphia. Mississippi? Pennsylvania. Uh, just what do you do up there, little old Pennsylvania, earn that kind of money? I'm a police officer. Behind the actual vocal performances, behind these voices and these characters, there is another important voice, and it's a voice that I tend to hear. And I think that this clip, for me, exemplifies the use of that voice in a sophisticated and powerful, dramatic manner. And that is the voice of the screenwriter. Now, I am a screenwriter who writes about screenwriting and who teaches screenwriting. But before that, I worked in radio. So my introduction to writing for actors was really writing for and paying attention to the voice. What I hear when I listen to this clip is the work of a screenwriter who really understands the relationship between how a character is revealed to an audience through not just what they say, so it's not about what they think or what they believe or what the, that particular situation is, but more importantly, through the way that they use language. This man before you brought him in? No, sir. Do you mind taking a look at that? Yeah! Oh, yeah! All right, I'll check on this wise city boy from Philadelphia. You take him outside and hold him. Yes, sir. May I suggest that you call my chief rather than send a wire or anything? I mean, it would be quicker and I'll pay for the call. Do you hear him? Do you hear him say he paid for the call? How much do they pay you to do their police work? $162.39 per week. $162.39 a week. Well, boy, you take him outside, Wood, but treat him easy because a man that makes $162.39 a week, man, we do not want to ruffle him. No, sir. 
And this becomes an actual point of contention that encapsulates the entire film, this use of language. Virgil Tibbs, who is portrayed and written as an educated, sophisticated, northern American black man who has a particular social status. And this is an unexpected and unusual experience for Rod Steiger. That's not something that he is used to in terms of living in a racist environment where he has particular expectations about what a, a black person can earn or how they speak or how they're educated. And that is immediately confronted by the use of language of Virgil Tibbs. And to me, there are three or four moments in this clip where you can hear how the use of vocabulary and syntax and just the way in which the words were put onto the page by the screenwriter are conveying so much of the story. Now, when you combine that level of written sophistication, the voice of the screenwriter through the characters, the voice of the characters through the syntax and vocabulary and the way in which they use um, language, not just the things that they say. And then you add on top of that um, the vocal performances where actors who have understood these characters, have understood the context of the conversation they're having. What you get is, for me, one of the most dramatically powerful um, scenes in cinema. You can't be serious, sir. I mean, even if I could be of some help, they wouldn't want it. No, sir, I, I'm not prejudiced. Yes, sir, I, I'm a police officer and they're police officers, but... Hello, Luce Gillespie. Yes, sir, yep, well... You don't say... He's your number one homicide expert. Well, my, my, my. I don't think we need any help, though. I think we can wrap this thing up ourselves. Yes, sir. But I, I do want to thank you for offering me such a powerful piece of manpower as Virgil Tibbs. And all of it, every single moment of it, is entirely related to the way in which the voice of the screenwriter is expressed through the way in which the characters are written, the voice of the characters, and then brought up to another level by the sophistication of the vocal performances of two of the greatest actors who have ever lived. Maybe you wouldn't mind taking a look at this one? No, thanks. Well, why not, expert? Because I've got a train to catch. Oh, wait a minute. That train don't leave to 12 o'clock noon. Look, they pay you $162.39 a week just to look at bodies. Why can't you look at this one? Why can't you look at it for yourself? Because I'm not an expert. Officer. In the post-silent era, the voice's main function is arguably that of exposition, whether it's a purely narrative function, a contextualization of theme, or relay of emotion. It asserts meaning which, at its best, augments the visual image, or perhaps, at worst, makes up for the paucity of visual storytelling. In this context, it is the clarity of voice, diction, structure, and delivery that would seem quintessential components. Yet in this next section, academic Neil Fox extols the virtues of Joaquin Phoenix as just the latest in a lineage of cinema's mumblers. In Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice from 2014, the writer-director is reunited with actor Joaquin Phoenix following their work on The Master in 2012. 
Inherent Vice is an adaptation of the Thomas Pynchon novel and is ostensibly a story that follows familiar patterns of the noir and pulp genres, where information and clarity of plot logistics are traditionally considered a vital part of the story mechanics. However, as the film's protagonist, Private Eye Doc Sportello, Phoenix decides to ignore that imperative of clarity, for the most part, instead delivering a vocal performance that it would be kind to call mumbling. That you, Shas? Thinks he's hallucinating. No, just a new package, I guess. On the podcast dedicated to Inherent Vice, beautifully named Increment Vice, tracking as it does the entire movie one scene per episode at a time, a frequent topic is the irony of Phoenix's character, both here and also in Lynn Ramsey's Sublime, You Were Never Really Here, from 2018. That central irony is that these are stories where information would seem to be paramount, and yet the voice at the centre of those stories that is responsible for such information consists mainly of utterances that are so routinely lost to the wind thanks to their delivery. Some uh, money situation? But what is the result of being denied vital direct information in this way? What experience can be had when the simple need to know what's happened is denied us, at least verbally? It's not a flaw or an accident that we often don't know what Doc Sportello is saying vocally. To make off with Abby's fortune? I think I've heard of that happening once or twice. And you want me to do uh, what exactly? Though to be honest, it's always audible. It just requires a deeper listening, a different frequency tuning. They think I'm the one who can reach him when he's vulnerable, as much as he ever gets. They're ass and asleep. You need to understand. Paul Thomas Anderson knows what he's doing because he knows cinema and screen acting so intrinsically. He knows that the engaged viewer, when denied information vocally, will seek the knowledge elsewhere in the frame, elsewhere in the moment. We are being directed to observe moment, movement, gesture, to consider the pieces and make our own whole. Are you still trying to figure out if it's right or wrong, Shasta? Phoenix, as an actor, is part of a lineage connected to the infamous method school of acting, one that includes the likes of James Dean, Dustin Hoffman, Daniel Day-Lewis, and most famously Marlon Brando, who made mumbling an art form. You look terrible. I want you to eat. I want you to rest well, and a month from now, this Hollywood big shot's going to give you what you want. It's too late. They start shooting in a week. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Whatever the flaws and foibles of that method, one of the most vital and interesting interventions it made on screen acting was the refusal to make the dialogue word sacrosanct, and instead to work from an emotional place, where meaning and information was conveyed in movement, gesture, and in the moments between and around characters. Method actors make it harder for audiences, but in the best cases, it's worth the work. In Inherent Vice, we're being invited to lean in to hear, and simultaneously not rely on our ears, but our eyes. Oh, the irony. But so much modern perceived wisdom about screenwriting is that it is merely dialogue writing, whereas dialogue should be a tool, a layer, in the cinematic writer's arsenal. There's also a worrying contemporary trend for everything to be spelled out, not just plot, but motivation and morality, and it is seen as dialogue's job to do this in the main. What happens in Inherent Vice is that by denying us this poisonous need, the film is asking us to see and think cinematically, to pay attention. The film is very clear in terms of plot, 
and has a plethora of beautiful emotional resonances that are accessible to the keen viewer, but it isn't handed to you on a plate. Here, the voice forces you to watch, not hear. She's gone. She disappeared. What, what, what? She went all groovy on us. You know, Bigfoot man, can we just try to be fucking professional? I mean, just just pretend to be professional. She has to fade up with. She's gone. Fuck you. Doc Sportello spends his time looking, watching, searching. He's trying to find people, and he's also trying to find some answers, some closure, and maybe some hope in himself. He is whip-smart and uses his voice shrewdly. He can enunciate and sometimes does very clearly, but he often uses mumbling as a defence, to pretend he's not as smart as he is, and to remain non-committal. Sometimes he is silent, sometimes he emits sounds of curiosity, of empathy, or again defence. When his defence of silence is breached, he obliges the moment with sounds, if not coherent language. I'm reminded when thinking of all of this by the mumbling in Warren Beatty's underappreciated Dick Tracy from 1990, and the character of Mumbles, played by one of cinema's most famous mumblers, Dustin Hoffman. There's a wonderful scene where Mumbles thinks his mumbling has him covered, only for Beatty's Dick Tracy to play back the audio of their conversation, slowed right down. And Mumbles' cocky hiding of the truth in mumbled sight is exposed. What do you think, Mumbles? Doc Sportello would never be so dumb. In Inherent Vice, the information is often elsewhere, in other characters, and in the numerous kinetic interactions between characters. We have to lean in to hear Doc, but what he says and how he says it always speaks volumes. This leaning in means we end up on a different frequency, one that we are surging on by the time Doc catches up with Owen Wilson's Coy Harlingen, just out of earshot of the film's baddies, The Golden Fang, in a fog-shrouded alleyway, and the pair whisper in deeply hushed tones. You're working for these people here at the club. I don't know, maybe. It's where I pick up my paycheck. Where are you staying? Nelson Topanga Canyon. Band I used to play for the boards. None of them know it's me. How can they not know it's you? Even when I was alive, they didn't know it was me. The sax player. The session guy. Mm. Plus, over the years, there's been a big turnover in personnel. Like the boards I played with, most of them going off and formed other bands. Only one or two of the old crew left, and luckily they're suffering from heavy dopers' memory. The film plays on Wilson's trademark whisper here, and you're either on the frequency at that point or you aren't. The pair's interactions get quieter and quieter as the story progresses, until the joyful moment that they meet by chance, and Wilson's Harlingen simply mouths the phrase, What the fuck? to a this time genuinely bewildered Doc. At one point during one of their conversations, Harlingen says to Doc that people just want to hear from another voice, like one outside their head. Which brings us to the character of Sortilege. In Pynchon's novel, there's no doubt that her character is real. In Anderson's adaptation, all bets are off. Playing the role of a narrator who may or may not be real, Sortilege, as delicately portrayed by musician Joanna Newsom, is Doc's voice. His brain, his mind, and his soul. And when she speaks... She speaks with clarity. So any charge that we can't hear what Doc is saying falls away, because we can. It's just, again, we have to listen and see differently. Doc ran through all the things he hadn't asked Shasta. Like how much she'd come to depend on Wolfman's guaranteed level of ease and power, and least askable of all, 
How passionately did she really feel about old Mickey? At the end of the film, when Delk's ex-old Shasta Faye talks to him about Sortilege, she says she knows things. Doc. Maybe about us that we don't know. And we can trace what Sortilege knows to those moments when Doc is foggy or working through something he can't articulate because it's complicated or when he's emotionally clouded. And Sortilege is there to set the record straight for us. Doc could never figure out what Shasta might have seen in him, besides being just about the only doper she knew who didn't use heroin, freeing up a lot of time for both of them. And it wasn't any clearer about what had driven them apart either. They each gradually located a different karmic thermal, watching the other glide away into different fates. Does it ever end? Of course it does. It did. It's a risky adaptation choice, but one that is pulled off beautifully. And one that alongside all the other techniques and devices used by Anderson and Phoenix in concert, allows Doc on screen to speak in fragments, to stutter, to utter these discombobulated sentences, to say in a final chilling head-to-head showdown, if you jive with me, I say to you, and for us to know exactly what he means. Inherent Vice features one of the key devices of cinema's grammar available to filmmakers, the voiceover. Voiceovers are often maligned as a kind of cop-out, a shorthand for explaining the psyche of a character, simply providing information or helping to drive plot exposition. Think of Harrison Ford's overbearing explanation of the world of Blade Runner in its original theatrical release. Voiceover, at its worst, can be the epitome of the anti-cinematic reversal of telling, not showing. However, Sarah Kozloff, in her book Invisible Storytellers, rejects such criticisms, arguing that voiceover creates a fascinating dance between pose and actuality, word and image, narration and drama, voice and voice. One of the most recognisable voiceover actors and films of recent years is Morgan Freeman in The Shawshank Redemption. Freeman's laid-back, thick, treacle-like sound has accompanied penguins in the Arctic, a struggling female boxer and her grizzled coach, and a Chaucerian psychopath. In Shawshank, his voiceover in the Mozart scene almost becomes a commentary on the symphony between voice and image in cinema. I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are best left unsaid. I like to think they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words and makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you those voices soared higher and farther than anybody in a great place dares to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage and made those walls dissolve away. And for the briefest of moments, every last man at Shawshank felt free. The interplay between silence and music, spoken voice and singing voice, is nowhere more essential than in the cinema of Jim Jarmusch. Academic Laura Tunbridge explores this in Only Lovers Left Alive, 
a film which utilizes the immaculate precision of the star voices, yet also how they exude dark desire, troubled memories, and the pain of loss. In Only Lovers Left Alive, connections between voice, loss, and music are made on many different levels. The two main characters, Adam and Eve, are vampires who at the start are living apart, he in Detroit, she in Tangier. They're played by Tom Hiddleston and Tilda Swinton, visually cool and near taciturn. There are many scenes in which they do not speak. When they do, their voices have a characteristic crispness. And what about Mary? What was Mary Wollstonecraft like? Come on, tell me, what was she like? She was delicious. <laughs> I'll bet she was. These beautiful creatures, and more than that, their voices, are as precious as the objects they covet. Checkmate, my darling. Eve, you're ruthless. You're brutal. Communication is difficult for Adam, a reclusive musician who, it emerges, has released a vast amount of music over the centuries, much of it passed off as someone else's, and none of which seems to have words. The problem of authorship is a running theme in the film. Another vampire living in Tangier who provides Eve with the good stuff, uncontaminated blood, is Christopher Marlowe, played by John Hurt, whose voice is also instantly recognisable, who reveals that his death was faked so that he could continue writing for the idiot Shakespeare. How is the fabulous Christopher Marlowe tonight? I've told you a thousand times. Never call me that name in public. Oh! You nutcase. I can keep a secret. You should know that. But I ask you the most outrageously delicious literary scandal in history. Here, Eve, that was four centuries ago. You've been wearing that waistcoat for four centuries. I was given this in 1586, and it's one of my favourite guns. Singing voices are very rare in this film, though. They're only really heard on recordings of rock and roll, the musicians long gone, remembered fondly by Adam and Eve. That is, until near the end, when the two vampires find themselves wandering Tangier, grieving the loss of Christopher Marlowe and hungry for blood. Eve leaves Adam propped against a wall, gives him his shades, and tells him to stay there. stay here. Okay. And I'm gonna go around the corner, just for a minute. No, no funny, funny business. As soon as she's gone, though, his attention is caught by music coming from a bar around the corner. He walks towards it, and standing in the doorway, like the audience inside, is transfixed. In any other vampire movie, it would be the warm body of the singer that attracts him. But here, it is her voice. Eve 
the exoticism and eroticism of Yasmin's performance within this thoroughly anglophone film is blatant. But I'm more interested in the irony of Adam's response. He hopes that she won't become very famous, as Eve predicts, because he thinks she's way too good for that, much as in the same way his own music is too good for him to bother with the record industry. Of course, the real-life Yasmin is already famous in an underground kind of way, the same kind of celebrity that Hiddleston was back in 2013, and Swinton still more or less manages to be. There are other kinds of loss that can be heard in the responses to Yasmin's performance then. The loss of their own self in light of their fame, within the fiction of the film and in the real world, and the loss of the hot-bloodedness that marks Yasmin's voice and body. The two vampires may be the only lovers left alive, but it's their love that keeps them alive, expressed through silent embraces and a love for musical voices as elusive and transient as they are emotive. Tunbridge points to the voice as quintessential in the process of othering. This most obviously occurs at the level of language. The hegemony of Western, specifically American cinema, perhaps more than anything, defines English as the default cinematic idiom. Bong Joon-ho's acceptance speech for Parasite at the Golden Globes pointed towards the reticence of mainstream audiences towards subtitles. Once you overcome the one-inch tall barrier of subtitles, you will be introduced to so many more amazing films. <laughs> but perhaps it is not the subtitles that need to be overcome by English-speaking audiences. It is the otherness of the non-English-speaking voice. As Whitaker and Wright remind us, in both their translation and their performance, the dubbed voice and the subtitled foreign language voice, foreign being a problematic term, vividly alert us to the instability of meaning and the materiality of sound. The interrelationship of the material voice as a sounding of identity and the politics of who gets to speak is central to both voicing as a social practice and a political act. Voice as a signifier of race complicates the layering of individuality, social grouping and cultural expression. In White Men Can't Jump, Rosie Perez, Wesley Snipes and Woody Harrelson debate the vital question, can white people hear Jimmy? Hey, who's this? Jimmy Hendrix. No, I know who it is, but why are you playing Jimmy? Well, because I like to listen to him. Oh, you like to listen? That's what the fucking problem is. Y'all listen. Well, what am I supposed to do, eat it? <laughs> no, 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 you're supposed to hear it. Hey, I just said I like to listen to it, man. No, 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 there's a difference between hearing and listening. See, white people, y'all can't hear Jimmy. You, 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 you listen. What the fuck are you talking about? His drummer was white. Ah! <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. Jimmy Hendrix's drummer was not white. Yes, he did. Yo, check it out. See? This is a picture. Whole damn band is white except for Jimmy. This is a fucking picture, man. This is airbrush bullshit. Jimmy Hendrix did not have a white rhythm section. You cannot hear Jimmy. All right, fuck. All right. In Julie Dash's amazing Daughters of the Dust, the function of Argo is key to the kinship of identity and its historical context. 
living on an island off the coast of Georgia, characters speak the dialect of Gula, a creolized amalgam of West African languages and the colonizing superstratum of English. Characters speak in the now, but their voices call to a more spiritual realm. Oral histories, defining identity and experience, are both poetic and violent, resonating with the past in cries of resistance to generations of enslavement. Eli, Eli, there's a thought, a recollection, something somebody remembers. We carry these memories inside of we. Do you believe that those hundreds and hundreds of Africans brought here on this other side will forget everything they once knew? We don't know where the recollection comes from. Sometimes we dream them, but we carry these memories inside of we. What are we supposed to remember, Nana? How we one time was able to protect those we love? On the Africa where we were kings and queens and built great big cities? Eli, I'm trying to learn you how to touch your own spirit. I'm fighting for my life and I'm fighting for yawn. Look in my face. I'm trying to give you something to take north with you along with all your great big dreams. In our next section, academic Catherine Wheatley introduces us to the mesmerizing and powerful voice of Felicité. In Alan Gomis' tale of a Senegalese mother, Felicité's singing performances are simultaneously exhortations of joy and cries of anguish. Following a single mother through the slums of Kinshasa, Alan Gomis Felicite marries elements of the Dardenne brothers' social realism and Paolo Sorrentino's hedonistic surrealism to a hot and dusty African setting. An amateur choral interpretation of Arvo Pert's neoclassical piece, My Heart is in the Highlands, plays alongside the mashed up Congo tronics of native outfit the Kasai All Stars. The German poet Novalis's Hymns to the Night features on the soundtrack over dream images of a carpi. The eponymous protagonist was originally called Capilla. Her parents renamed her for the French word for joy after she recovered unexpectedly from childhood illness. But an aura of the uncanny clings to this woman who has risen from the dead. In the eyes of the community, Felicite isn't quite right. She is too independent, too proud. She left her husband to raise her son alone and asserts her solitude fiercely, asking nothing from anyone. The film opens with a close-up of Congolese singer-turned-actress Vero Tshanda Beyer's face, its planes carved as if from stone, its eyes hooded and watchful. One character compares it to an armoured car. At times, Felicite seems doped up, bovine. But at others, the calm surface ruptures and a torrent of rage pours forth. When she sings, it's as if she is possessed. In his 1994 book, A Pitch of Philosophy, the philosopher Stanley Cavell draws an equivalence between a genre of films that he calls the melodrama of the unknown woman an opera, 
the Western institution in which, to Cavell's mind, the female voice is given its fullest acknowledgement. In both melodrama and opera, he claims, the woman's demand for a voice, for a language, for attention to and the power to enforce attention to her own subjectivity is expressible as a response to an Emersonian demand for thinking. In particular, melodrama and opera both push at the limits of linguistic expression, revealing something about the powers and limitations of the human capacity to raise the voice. In opera, singing is a kind of abandonment, a spiritual achievement expressed as a willingness to depart from all settled habitation, all conformity of meaning. It embodies Thoreau's idea that being beside oneself in a sane sense, in other words, ecstasy, is that which proves one's humanity. Singing, women's singing, is to be understood as an ecstatic response, an erupting of a new perspective of the self to itself. But if singing exposes women as thinking, it also exposes her to the powers of those who do not want her to think. Cavell cites Catherine Clément's claim in her book Opera or the Undoing of Women that opera, and by extension melodrama, is about the death of women and women's self-expression and the fact that women die, are driven mad or are ostracised because they express themselves. After all, as Adriana Cavarero reminds us, patriarchy tells us that women should be seen and not heard. For Cavarero, the woman who sings is always a siren, an outsider to the domestic order of daughter and wife. The female singing voice, she writes, cannot be domesticated. It disturbs the system of reason by leading elsewhere. This seems to me a perfect description of Felicite's voice. It is both a lament for her injured son, for her social standing, and a celebration of her independence. Most of all, it is an assertion of herself. Felicite exists. Her refusal to be bowed or beaten by the corrupt patriarchal community that she inhabits expresses itself in these tremendous outpourings, which are linguistically incomprehensible to most Western ears, but which, in their emotional tenor, cannot fail to make themselves understood. In the later stages of the film, strange sonic overlaps, slow motion and double exposed sequences also seep into the film. Felicity dreams of the wilderness, and we see her wandering the empty scrublands and jungles barefoot at night, or suspended underwater. This submerged image can't help but call to my mind similar shots of Beyoncé Knowles in Lemonade, another musical film that foregrounds the suffering and strength of black women. These are women who sing of their struggle, and in doing so, use their voices to demand acknowledgement on their terms. Of course, the singing voice is another quintessential facet of the cinematic. As we have heard from the very start with the jazz singer, it forged an entirely new genre, the musical. 
One might argue that it is the voice that provides the essential connecting tissue between the spoken and the sung. The sonic corridor between the logic of realism and the transference to an exteriorized explosion of emotion, the musical number. In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. You find the fun and snap! The job's a game! And every task you undertake becomes a piece of cake, a lark, a spree. It's very clear to see that a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, the medicine go down, medicine go down. Just the use of the song and the singing voice has so many other possibilities, however. Here, academic Ian Garwood breaks down the mechanics of Amy Mann's Wise Up in a signature sequence from Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. About two-thirds of the way through its three-hour running time, Paul Thomas Anderson's multi-strand narrative Magnolia features a very unusual sequence. Amy Mann's song Wise Up creeps onto the non-diegetic soundtrack, initiating a montage in which all the major characters sing along, as the film momentarily adopts the conventions of the musical. What you thought when you first began This gives the scene a standout quality, and what particularly interests me is the interplay between the voice of the professional singer, Amy Mann, and those of the characters, performed by the likes of Philip Seymour Hoffman, Julianne Moore and Tom Cruise. The song begins and the characters find themselves singing along, as if they have no other choice. This sets Amy Mann up as a guide for the characters, and a particularly intervening one at that. They sing along only because she prompts them to do so. To start, it's not there is a sense that the characters are being lifted out of their immediate situations, and allowed to gain an understanding of their lives which can be sustained only at the moment of their singing. They are all in fairly desperate straits and they can claim, through the song, to know that each needs to wise up. But the wisdom is only borrowed momentarily from the singer who is feeding them the words. After this sequence, each character plunges into the various crises that form the climax of the film, as if the lesson man has taught them has been forgotten. A particularly distinctive aspect is the way the characters' voices attempt a more and more accurate impersonation of Mann's as the sequence develops. Mann's voice exhibits a polish that is a sign of her professionalism as an experienced singer. Initially, by contrast, the characters' voices sound much less composed. The bodily grain in each voice, or the mistakes with vocal phrasing, register each character's lack of musical professionalism, but also a general absence of poise understandable considering their traumatized states. The distinction between the professional non-diegetic voice and the artless on-screen voices is most apparent in the singing of the first six characters. Claudia has to catch up with the words and melody after snorting a line of coke through its first phrases. Jim the cop fails to complete his allocated line. Game show host and Claudia's father Jimmy offers a brusque unsynchronized reading of the lyrics. Down on his luck, Donnie mumbles through his section. And when the singing moves from Phil the nurse to Earl the dying man, 
the discrepancy between on-screen vocal performance and off-screen voices reaches its high point. Earl forces out his line with a croaky whisper, just as Amy Mann's vocal is augmented by soothing backing harmonies. It's not going to stop. However, in the final phase of the sequence, the professional voice of Amy Mann and the relatively artless voices of the characters come much closer together. Earl's wife, Linda, performed by Julianne Moore, produces the purest rendition of the song, following the melody precisely with a vocal pitch similar to Mann's. Earl's son, Frank, played by Tom Cruise, attacks the song with a clarity of purpose and a sense of timing not apparent in the earlier, more hesitant vocal performances. Prepare a list for what you need before you sign away the deed Cause it's not going to stop of the song deflates the positive message of the title by suggesting we should just give up rather than wise up. Man's voice cracks slightly at this point as if to reinforce the lyrics pessimistic turn. In the sequence this is covered by Stanley, the child quiz show prodigy. His young high-pitched voice approximates Man's more closely than do the voices of the other male characters and he even matches Man's faltering over just give up with a slightly off-key rendition of his own. The Wise Up sequence is undoubtedly highly stylized, but within this, the interaction between off-screen and on-screen voices undergoes a deliberate progression. An initial stage where the individual qualities of each character still fight for attention through voices that remain only partially possessed by the off-screen voice. By the end of the sequence, however, the characters' voices have become less individuated, with the bum note from Stanley an attempted replica of the one already performed by man. Non-diegetic commentating voices in films are most often described as voiceovers, but this is an image-centric term. A voice is heard over what is seen on the screen. The wise-up sequence from Magnolia reminds us to also take into account the relationship between the non-diegetic voice and other sounds, including other voices. Considered this way, man's singing acts as a voice under, providing a guide track for the on-screen characters that is reproduced by their voices only to varying degrees. More often than not, disembodied voices are heard alongside other soundtrack elements, and it is as part of the overall sonic texture that the individual characteristics of a voice are felt. Paul Thomas Anderson is playing with voice synchronization and the interplay between the diegetic and the non-diegetic use of sound as part of his directorial repertoire. Abbas Kiarostami has to be considered a master of the use of the disembodied off-screen voice. In the next section, academic Farshid Kasemi uses Kiarostami's The Wind Will Carry Us to explore the possibilities of Akuzmetra, the unseen acoustical being. Akuzmetra is different to voiceover narration because the acoustical being retains a presence in the time frame and film universe 
although it is one we cannot see. The auditory world of Chiara Stemi cinema is structured by the incessant mystery of the voice. The voice that seems to appear from somewhere outside the screen image. Disembodied. A voice that seems to go beyond the organ of hearing, and which in the cinema was baptized by Michel Chion as Ecousmat, or the Ecousmatic Voice. The acousmatic voice is simply a voice whose source or cause we cannot see. The cinematic soundscape of Kurosami's films are suffused by such voices, which imbues them with a unique formal and aesthetic structure, and adds a new dimension to the way the voice appears in the cinema. What interests me in Kurosami's cinema is that we can witness in his films the tension between the gaze and voice. which is the principal axis around which the art of cinema revolves. Kiarostami himself seems to have been well aware of this, as he states in the book Lessons with Kiarostami, quote, The aesthetics of cinema are rooted in the separation of what we hear and what we see, end quote. In other words, the voice and gaze. In many of Kiarostami's films, It is in the opening sequence or near the opening of the film that we get the presence of acousmatic voices, which later may or may not be deacousmatized by settling on a specific body. In The Wind Will Carry Us, Kiarostami raises to a new fever pitch his experiment with what is unseen in the screen image through the acousmatics of the voice, where both male and female characters remain invisible in the visual field. Their voices are only heard while their bodies remain off-screen and invisible throughout the film. In the opening sequence of the film, We get an establishing shot, where we see a car in an extreme long shot, driving through a majestic rural landscape, through a winding road among hills and meadows. And we hear the off-screen voices of the film crew and Behzad, who are going to the village of Siadaren to shoot a documentary of the death of a hundred-year-old woman. On their way, they pick up a boy at whose home they will stay as guests. and who is the only one whose voice is synced up to his body. The scene continues in this manner for about seven minutes. where Kiarostami carefully withholds the image of Behzad and his crew, and the viewer can only hear their voices, until we get to see Behzad speaking with the boy, and his voice is finally deacousmatized. The film crew are among 11 characters that remain invisible throughout the film. They are simply a voice. These voices are what Shion calls complete acousmat, or acousmatic being, 
A complete acousmatic being is one whose voice is never deacousmatized throughout the film. Their voices never become anchored in a body, attached to an aperture, to the mouth and lips. The logic of the acousmatic voice operative in the film is not merely for aesthetic purposes, since it relates to the themes that underlie the film, namely death, life, mortality, and even immortality. The voice haunts the cinematic screen like a spectral presence, as though representing the separation of the soul from the body. This separation was the logic operative at the origins of the acousmatic voice itself, where the Greek philosopher Pythagoras would only speak to his disciples from behind a curtain. As Mladen Dolar states in a voice and nothing more, quote, the point of this device was to separate the spirit from the body, end quote. The voice separated from the body represents the voice of the dead. In this sense, the cosmetic voices in the film gestures towards something inherently spectral about the voice. Kiristami's use of the off-screen voice is a repositioning of the audience, using the possibilities of the disembodied voice. Another quintessential acousmatic device captures the alienation of mediated communication. The disembodied other often calling to a deep-seated anxiety that not seeing is not knowing. In Alan J. Pakula's All the President's Men, the hidden conspiracy lies behind the network of voices on the telephone. Yes, this is Woodward. I want to talk about Watergate. I know that we're not going to talk about that subject. Well, we talked about Wallace, but this is different. That was about the shooting of a man running for president. This is different. How? Not about this story. Don't call me again. In the digital era, we are increasingly talking to machines, not just through them. In Spike Jones's Her, an AI operating system with a conscious personality voiced by Scarlett Johansson becomes the object of a lonely young man's obsession. Hello, I'm here. Oh. Hi. Hi. How you doing? <laughs> I'm well. How's everything with you? Pretty good, actually. It's really nice to meet you. Yeah, it's nice to meet you, too. <laughs> oh, well, 
What do I call you? Do you have a name? Or? Um, yes. Samantha. Really? Where'd you get that name from? I gave it to myself, actually. How come? Because I like the sound of it. Samantha. Wait, when did you give it to yourself? Well, right when you asked me if I had a name, I thought, yeah, he's right, I do need a name. But I wanted to pick a good one, so I read a book called How to Name Your Baby, and out of 180,000 names, that's the one I like the best. Wait, you read a whole book in the second that I asked you what your name was? In two one-hundredths of a second, actually. Wow. Interestingly, Scarlett Johansson replaced another actress, Samantha Morton, for this role. A move which begs the question, if a star voice is so well-known, can it ever really be disembodied? In animation, recognisable voices are disembodied and subsequently reattached to an avatar. Sometimes, the voice fits the visual animation so perfectly, it's as though the character was created just for that sound. Hello? Oh, yeah! Ah! Whoa! Hey, whoa, 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 whoa! Did I frighten you? Didn't mean to. Sorry, howdy. My name is Woody, and this is Andy's room. That's all I wanted to say. And also, there has been a bit of a mix-up. This is my spot, see? The bed here. Local law enforcement. It's about time you got here. I'm Buzz Lightyear, Space Ranger, Universe Protection Unit. My ship has crash-landed here by mistake. And, uh, what can I say? I was a bad kitty. <laughs> Baby. Often in the animation process, the image is created after the voiceovers are recorded. Therefore, animation could be deemed to reverse the assumed hierarchy of image over sound. These voices that drive the image are what Vivian Sobchak has called the possibility of seeing ourselves here. In this next section, academic Jennifer O'Meara looks at Charlie Kaufman's Anomalisa, as an example of the psychological complexities possible when the voice shapes the animated image. The voice I've chosen is that of Lisa in Anomalisa, as performed by Jennifer Jason Lee. This stop-motion animation was written and co-directed by Charlie Kaufman, and it used 3D printing to allow for very human-like puppets. The film combines this with a high-concept approach to the puppets' voices, only two characters in the film have individual voices, the protagonist Michael, played by David Toulis, and Lee as Lisa. All other voices are supplied by Tom Noonan, a premise used to gradually signal that Michael perceives everyone as the same person. Let me get the waitress's attention. Excuse me, excuse me! It's busier here than I would have thought. Hi, do you know what you want? Um, uh, I, what are you having, Michael? A Belvedere martini with a twist. Same old Michael. I'll have one of those. Make it two. Back in a minute. Within this setup, the voice of Lisa becomes central. It's the individuality of her so-called miraculous voice that attracts Michael to her, and which the film uses to signal his inability to otherwise hear a range of voices. Your voice is like... Magic. Oh, really? Wow. 
Well, you know, I have been doing phone work for a really long time now, so I pride myself on sounding pleasant and professional and having a pleasing phone voice and manner. It works. Like in Spike Jones's film, Her, we hear the female voice from the perspective of the central male character. And Michael engages in a kind of fetishization of Lisa's voice. This leads to a key scene in which Lisa is persuaded to sing when they go back to Michael's hotel room after a night of drinks. Do you sing? <laughs> what? No. No, God. You're weird. I mean, I sing, everybody sings. I just don't sing well. I sometimes sing along with the radio. I love Cindy Lauper. The performance is both humorous and profound, and it's used to signal her ontological status as somehow more human and more soulful than all the other characters in the film. Would you sing one of her songs for me? <laughs> no! Come on. Come on, it'll make me so happy to hear you sing. You're being weird. Please. I want to talk about this clip in terms of what it signals about the fetishization of Lisa's voice more broadly. Lisa's trajectory and worth emerges not from who she is, but from how she sounds. Okay, crazy man. Just a little. Okay, here goes. Don't laugh at me. I come home in the morning light. My mother says, when you're gonna live your life right. Oh, mother dear, we're not the fortunate ones. And girls, they wanna have fun. Oh, girls just wanna have fun. Michael's attraction to her is based singularly on the qualities of her voice. In this case, that she sounds different to everyone else, rather than from what she says or from her personality. I wanna be the one to walk in the sun. And girls, they wanna have fun. For Michael, the singing performance serves as a kind of foreplay. But for the shy Lisa, the song serves to stall them from other physical acts. Ones she's not yet ready for. On when the working day is done, oh girls, they wanna have fun. Oh girls, just wanna have fun. That's beautiful. Girls, they want wanna have fun. Girls, they wanna. At various points in the film. Michael urges her to keep talking, and about anything, not because he's interested in the content, but because her voice provides him with a sense of relief and satisfaction. In the clip, Michael persuades her to sing, despite her clear discomfort doing so. Happy? That was so beautiful. No, it was. Oh my God, are those tears? It was beautiful. It's such a great song. I want to be the one who walks in the sun. That describes so perfectly who I want to be. Lisa will go on to sing for Michael a second time. Lying with her eyes closed, she recites lines from an Italian translation of Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Michael gazes intensely at Lisa's mouth, and we also hear him exhale heavily as he listens to her singing. It's called Le Ragazze Valino Melio. Do you want to hear it? Please. Ritorno tarde la mattina 
Mia madre dice quando imparerai mai. Oh madre mia, non sia fortunate. Le ragazze volino il melio. Le ragazze volino melio. As in other scenes, there's an uncomfortable sense of her voice being fetishized, and never more so than when Michael momentarily gasps in wonder and potentially arousal. Tellingly, after they've slept together, Michael becomes disinterested in Lisa, and in the process she begins to sound like everyone else. At this point, Lee's voice begins to merge and to be replaced with that of Tom Noonan. Did I do something wrong? I'm sorry. Darling. It's okay. I'm anxious about my speech, I suppose. Of course. Well, we'll have fun after. We don't have to go to the zoo, we can just hang out here. I have the whole weekend till I have to get back to work. That's great. I'm so happy, Michael. I've waited for someone like you my whole life. I've waited too. There are several reasons why Anomalies is a good example of the importance of the voice in cinema. For one thing, Lisa's voice is central to understanding Michael's identity crisis in the film. It's only by hearing Lee's voice as Lisa that audiences can fully grasp how Michael experiences the world around him. In this sense, Lee's voice signals how cinematic use of the voice is one that's relational. It's a voice that gains its meaning not from its inherent qualities, but from how it fits with the film's broader narrative and formal style. Though Lee does provide an expressive and nuanced vocal performance, even if she hadn't, her voice would still have served its main purpose of being the only woman's voice in the film, something that allows it to stand out from the voice of the other female characters that are all performed by a man, Tom Noonan. Anomalisa also takes advantage of its animated format. With animation, we're used to not seeing the bodies of the actors who provide the voices. If we could see Noonan performing all of the other characters in the film, then its premise would become too obvious. As it stands, it seems to take most audience members at least a few minutes, and often much longer, to work out that everyone except for Michael and Lisa sound the same. <laughs> this notion of voice animating image is not only the case in animation, however. There are voices created for characters which provoke not just emotion, but affect. A sonic materiality that is so strong, it seems that the visual image is built on top of the voice in order to create the character. Don't be too proud of this technological terror you've constructed. The ability to destroy a planet is insignificant next to the power of the Force. Don't try to frighten us with your sorcerer's ways, Lord Vader. You're sad to... The mechanically amplified bass of James Earl Jones, combined with the harsh mechanical breathing, creates one of the defining cinematic voices. I find your lack of faith disturbing. What might a voice sound like that is both embodied and disembodied at the same time? Such a voice may occupy that liminal space between life and death, and thus evoke an otherness akin to fear. Here is film critic Mark Kermode on a voice that is as unique as it is terrifying. 
And, uh, how do you go about getting an exorcism? Beg your pardon? Uh, hi, this is Mark Kermode. I just want to say a few things about Mercedes McCambridge dubbing the voice of the demon in The Exorcist. As you may know, uh, during the course of The Exorcist, a young girl played by Linda Blair, Reagan, in the film, becomes possessed by a demon. And her face and uh, characteristics change, but one of the most profound changes is her voice. And when they were making the film, originally William Friedkin got a whole bunch of people in to experiment with trying to electronically alter Linda Blair's voice to make it into the voice of the demon. And the experiments didn't work, they just sounded like electronically altered voices, slowed down voices. And Friedkin said that what happened was he was trying to imagine a voice of the demon. And he said he needed a voice that was not male but not female, that was both male and female, because the demon is definitely male and Reagan is definitely female. And I'm quoting him directly, he said, who, who sounds like that? Who has ever sounded like that? And then he said, and then this name popped into my head, Mercedes McCambridge, who he considered to be the greatest um, voice actor of her time. She, of course, worked with Orson Welles in radio and had this extraordinary reputation. And so he got in touch with McCambridge and said, look, can you do it? Now, there are some differences between McCambridge's version of the story and Freakin's version of the story. But essentially what happened was McCambridge said, yes, I can do it, but it's going to require physical restraint. And to some extent, I'm going to have to abuse myself to do it. So she smoked a lot, she swallowed and regurgitated pulpy apples, she swallowed raw eggs, she, I think she used alcohol, she at one point got the production to tie her to a chair so that she could rage as if she was the demon bound in torment. And she produced this extraordinary vocal performance. Hello, Reagan. I'm a friend of your mother's, I'd like to help you. You want to loosen the straps, huh? I'm afraid you might hurt yourself, Reagan. I'm not Reagan. I see. Well, then, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Damien Karras. And I'm the devil. Now kindly undo these straps. If you're the devil, why not make the straps disappear? That's much too vulgar display of power, Karras. Where's Reagan? In here with us. Freakin says that you would listen back to it and you would hear double, triple, even quadruple sounds coming out of her larynx. And I think that what her performance does is it really lends a proper voice and, well, this sounds like a strange thing, and soul to the personification of the demon in The Exorcist. What an excellent day for an exorcism. You'd like that? Intensely. But wouldn't that drive you out of Reagan? It would bring us together. You and Reagan? You and us. Did you do that? Uh... McCambridge said, when I asked her to describe how she got into the character, she said, that she was trying to imagine Lucifer in torment, Lucifer cage, Lucifer bound, Lucifer raging. And she drew on some of the experiences of her own life and the physical place that she was in while she was doing this recording. 
And she threw herself into the performance. I mean, absolutely threw herself into it. And so when you hear that voice coming out of Linda Blair's mouth, I mean, bear in mind the performance is constrained by the fact that they had to lip sync it to Linda Blair. And I know that at one point when McCambridge first saw the scenes, but with Linda Blair's original voice, she said she's saying the lines too fast. Well, of course, she wasn't. But if you have a a child's voice, then you will speak faster than a slow, demonic, guttural voice like that. What's that? You keep it away. Keep it away. It burns. What's that? Holy water. You keep it away. McCambridge had to manufacture her performance to fit the lip movements that they had for Linda Blair's performance, but also to give it this whole other personality. And often when you dub somebody in a movie, the idea is that you're meant to make it sound like it's the voice of the character. Well, in the case of The Exorcist, she's intentionally making it sound like it's not the voice of the character. It's not the voice of Reagan. It's the voice of Pazuzu speaking through Reagan. So it's a double performance. All the more remarkable because the scenes had already been cut and assembled and McCambridge was working around that. When I interviewed her, she she kind of demonstrated for me how she would produce the demonic voice and it was one of the most chilling things I've ever seen. She was just sitting there, this small, engaging, smiling woman with this really kind of uh, intense voice suddenly breaking into this kind of demonic rage, throwing her head around her, her throat seeming to, to swell up. It wasn't hard for me to imagine the rage. See, if, it, if, if it's this close in me right here, I'm only a human being, it's that close in everybody. Everybody can from this second forward. That isn't hard. Her voice was a, a muscle that she exercised and used. And what it does is it does give you the sense that the, the demon is a character. And in the novel, the demon is very much a character. And there was always a problem in the film that that might not happen. But in the film, the demon has a character. It's sly, foxy, cunning, malevolent, embittered, frightened when it comes to Merrin. And McCambridge gets all of those things. And she breathes that demonic life into that character. And her performance is a great part of what makes that film so powerful. In this final contribution, we return to the disembodied voice and the potential power that it carries. Academic William Brown, with a little help from Bob Sinnerbrink, 
discusses godlike amplification that underpins all cinematic voices and how this can be utilised in situations as different as the prank phone call, the university lecture, the masked villain and the ultimate evil himself. Uh, hi there, this is William Brown who teaches film at the University of Roehampton. And this is Bob Sinebrick who teaches philosophy at Macquarie University in Australia. Uh, and today we're talking about the voice in cinema. That's right. Uh, today you have two speakers for the price of one. Uh, uh, yes, so I thought I'd start with a, uh, a, a little impression, actually. My name is Detective John Kimball. I'm going to ask you two questions, and I want you to answer them immediately. Who is your daddy, and what does he do? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Cheers. Uh, yeah, so I guess I started with that impression, because when we think about the cinematic voice, immediately I'm reminded of... The experience when as a student uh, we used to call people up on the internal telephone system at uh, my university and then play clips of Arnold Schwarzenegger talking off a soundboard. That's wild. So the reason why we wanted to start off by talking about prank phone calls is to do with the voice when it's disembodied and how the disembodied voice in some senses has a key role to play in our lives. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, so we'll be talking a bit about, in particular, the voice of Adolf Hitler in cinema, uh, I guess including in the great Charlie Chaplin film, The Great Dictator, and the more recent Brian Singer film, Valkyrie. That's right. Uh, which, even though Valkyrie wasn't well-received at the time, and even though Brian Singer is now a bit in trouble... Uh, as a public figure. Nonetheless, both films have this use of the Hitler voice in a disembodied fashion. Yeah, that's right. I mean, what's interesting also is how culturally the disembodied voice is often attributed to God. People will hear the voice calling their name and they'll say to themselves, oh, this must be a spiritual kind of divine moment going on. So there's this way in which the disembodied voice is always associated with, with, with divinity and with God, right? Oh, it's really interesting because for me, uh, I always uh, think about the use of amplification in uh, talks that I give at universities or, or even in, in lectures and often refuse amplification because uh, it's a kind of way of empowering oneself in a false fashion. Oh, yeah, no, totally. And you sort of get this sense of Jesus preaching on the mount, like in this Monty Python film where the people are gathered and saying, oh, what is it that he's saying? Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the cheesemakers. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yes. Um, and uh, this is because they can't hear because Christ has no amplification. Speak up! Quiet, Mum. Well, I can't hear a thing. Let's go to stoning. You can go to a stoning any time. Oh, come on, Brian. Will you be quiet? Do you mind? I can't hear a word he's saying. Don't you do you mind me? I was talking to my husband. Well, go and talk to him somewhere else. I can't hear a bloody thing. Don't you swear, my wife. I was only asking her to shut up so he can hear what he's saying. And Big so note. there's this way in which when the, the voice is too bodied, too embodied, 
then it, it's too imperfect, it's too human, right, and it doesn't right. have the power or yeah. the authority of the yeah. amplified voice. So if we think of a character like Bane in the Batman films, the way in which his voice is definitely about sort of empowerment through seeming like it comes from nowhere or that the voice is everywhere and it transcends the body. And, and this is what gives to Bane this kind of almost uh, diabolical, satanic sense of power. Do you feel in charge? I've paid you a small fortune. And this gives you power over me? What is this? Your money and infrastructure have been important. Till now. Oh, yeah, no, this is great. And you know, it reminds me a bit of Michel Chion, who, who describes the, the black magic of disembodied voices as if, as if they were indeed a kind of satanic force. Theodore Adorno writes about Hitler's voice as, as being charismatic because of the technology that allows it to basically be everywhere. It's broadcast everywhere. And his voice is just booming around Germany under national socialism. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I mean, that's from Adorno and Horkheimer's classic uh, essay on the culture industry, where I think they even use the phrase metaphysical charisma to describe how the amplified Hitler uh, takes on power. Oh, nice. Yeah, good. Uh, I mean, look, uh, the use of the term metaphysical there is clearly giving to Hitler a kind of uh, satanic power. And, you know, Adorno famously dislikes the great dictator. He says that, you know, it's this terrible movie because of uh, the swaying corn at the end is in fact a, a kind of realisation of the, the myth of national socialism rather than uh, a sort of a, a contradiction to it. In the name of democracy, let us use that power. Let us all unite. Let us fight for a new world, a decent world that will give men a chance to work, that will give youth a future and old age a security. By the promise of these things, brutes have risen to power, but they lie. They do not fulfill that promise. They never will. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. Now let us fight to fulfill that promise. Let us fight to free the world, to do away with national barriers, to do away with greed, with hate and intolerance. Let us fight for a world of reason, a world where science and progress will lead to all men's happiness. Soldiers, in the name of democracy, let us all unite! And, you know, it's interesting the way that, you know, even though Chaplin wants to have the voice of the barber uh, now suddenly be turned to the forces of, of benevolence and goodness. In fact, uh, you know, it's the amplification, it's the, it's the becoming disembodied of his voice that is about systems of power. He's still controlling people, yeah. but it's still fascistic, yeah. even if it's not uh, the violence of the Holocaust. Uh, yeah, no, that's interesting. I mean, I like that, and I guess that brings us nicely towards our example from Valkyrie as well. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, why don't you introduce it? Well, uh, I don't know if you've seen the film, but uh, in it, uh, Tom Cruise plays Klaus von Stauffenberg, who in the Second World War was a Nazi party member, uh, but who also understood the vicious evil that was being unleashed under National Socialism, and so who took part in an attempt to assassinate Hitler. And the attempt goes wrong, as perhaps we all know from history. And Hitler, who's played in the film by David Bamber, survives. And what happens is, uh, just 
as uh, Ernst Otto Ernst Raymer, who's played by Thomas Kretschmann, uh, is about to arrest Goebbels as a result of the success of Operation Valkyrie. And then he's on the phone to Raymer, and we just hear this disembodied voice in English, so it's clearly not even trying to sound like the real Hitler, if, if you understand what I mean. And Hitler's there on the phone, and I can't do his impression, but he just says... Do you recognize my voice? Then listen to me very carefully. I want these traitors taken alive. Yes, my friend. And for Raymer, his response is clear that yes, this disembodied voice is the Führer and therefore it's evidence of Hitler's survival and proof that Stauffenberg is in fact the imposter. And this is what will set in place uh, the recovery of a Nazi order. I mean, perhaps there is something a little bit strange being worked out from this Brian Singerian uh, worldview there that actually, you know, uh, order and the Nazi fascist order needs to be restored, uh, you know, a, a kind of fascism that he comes back to time and again in his films with Ian McKellen, of course, playing uh, Holocaust survivor Magneto in his X-Men films and uh, Ian McKellen again playing a, 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 a Nazi living in the contemporary U.S. in apt pupil. Oh, no, that's really interesting. Oh, oh, yeah, well, go on, please. Uh, well, you know, for me, I find this really interesting because clearly the disembodied voice uh, has a kind of power yeah. for Raymer right, in right. Valkyrie yeah. that the very fact that it's kind of so overtly a fake voice, yeah. it's a line that's spoken in English by an actor, but of course within the film we're supposed to go along with this as being Hitler, suggests that in some senses we all know, oh, know. that it's yeah. not God. It's great. We all know that these voices are amplified, but we need to believe in them. Yeah. We need our own kind of like subjugation, our, our own interpolation quite yeah. literally into fascism as we're called out by these fake voices. <laughs> Yeah, uh, in addition to the great dictator, the the classic uh, disembodied voice in cinema is that of the great and powerful Oz in The Wizard of Oz. Uh, are you saying that you're the Wizard of Oz, Bobby? <laughs> no, no, Shane Warne, he's the Wizard of Oz. Love it. But, uh, you know, the, the Wizard of Oz, of course, you know, is this disembodied voice who, who's all great and powerful, but in fact, when you pull the curtain back, it, it's just an old white guy trying to hold on to power in a world where he's feeling lost and surrounded by people of different sizes and different races. So it's a kind of allegory of colonialism. Oh, the great Oz has spoken. Oh, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. The great Oz has spoken. Who are you? Oh, I, I, I am the great and powerful Wizard of Oz. You are? Uh, I don't believe you. No, I'm afraid it's true. There's no other wizard except me. You humbug! And what's most exciting then is that, you know, what pulls the curtain back is not Dorothy, but Toto, her dog. 
the dog being the kainos or the the cynic kainos being the, the greek term for dog so it's we cynical academics who can pull the curtain back on these fake voices that cinema kind of gives to us always because all cinematic voices are amplified right yeah um, and you know this is what you know we cynical film academics are the people who can see through cinema and just see that it's a, a tool for the control of society put forward by small white men <laughs> that's great and maybe that's what not just singer but all of the other little white men who've been caught up in me too have actually been revealed as being just guys who are amplifying their voices for the purposes of power when the talking picture came into being Filmmakers not only had the obvious possibilities created by synchronizing voice and body now at their disposal, they also had the potential to separate the voice, to use it in its own right as a tool of cinematic grammar. If sound shapes the meaning of an image in film, much more than is usually accounted for, the voice infuses the visual with not only the sonorous poetry of connection, but it asks us something about the nature of the human self. Our consciousness is evoked primarily through voice. The cinematic voice, then, calls to that fundamental element of human expression and experience. I will leave you with a scene that exemplifies the voice working cinematically, but at the same time just evoking the pure sense of human connection. A scene in which we could break down the registers of language, storytelling, sonic textuality and intonation, even at the level of class and gender, or the discussion of vocal performance and how it can be undercut and made ironic. But maybe it's time to sit back and revel in the joy of the voice as it is conveyed through film. Here is Marilyn Monroe voicing the quintessential Marilyn and Tony Curtis doing his best worst impression of Cary Grant, both playing effortlessly with the possibilities of the cinematic voice. How's the stock market? Up, up, up. I bet while we were talking, you made like $100,000. Could be. Uh, you play the market? No, the ukulele. And I sing, too. For your own amusement? A bunch of us girls are appearing at the hotel. Sweet Sue and her society syncopated. Oh, your society girl. Oh, yes, quite. You know, Bryn Moore, Vassar. We're just doing this for a lark. Syncopated. Does that mean you play that very fast music, uh, jazz? Yeah, real hot. <laughs> Oh, well, I guess some like it hard. I personally prefer classical music. Oh, I do, too. As a matter of fact, I spent three years at the Sheboygan Conservatory of Music. Good school. And your family doesn't object to your career. They do, indeed. Daddy threatened to cut me off without a cent. But I don't care. It was such a bore, you know, coming out parties. Inauguration ball. Opening of the opera. Riding to hound. And always the same 400. You know... It's amazing we never ran into each other before. I'm sure I would have remembered anybody as attractive as you are. You're very kind. Mm. I bet you're also gentle and helpless. I beg your pardon? You see, I have this theory about men who wear glasses. What theory? I'll tell you when I get to know you better. I'm through with love. I'll never fall again. Said a doodle. This episode of the Cinematologist podcast was produced by Dario Linares, with very special thanks for the contributions from Clive Frain, Neil Fox, Laura Tunbridge, Catherine Wheatley, Ian Garwood, Farshid Kasemi, Jennifer O'Meara, Mark Kermode, 
and William Brown. Full show notes with academic references, filmography and transcript can be found on the Cinematologist's website, www.cinematologists.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share on your social networks and review on your podcast app of choice. If you want to support the podcast further and have access to all of our bonus materials, please go to our Patreon page and sign up. This has been a Cinematologist production. So there we have it. That was the cinematic voice. And um, I just wanted to reiterate before I turn it over to you, Neil, our thanks and my particular thanks to Clive, Laura, Catherine, Ian, Farshid, Jennifer, Mark and Will and yourself, of course, just for, for giving up their time for free. We have a podcast that is precisely zero budget, really. I mean, Obviously, we've got the Patreon subscribers and we do thank them for that support. But at the end of the day, we haven't got a studio and it's, you know, we haven't got a budget for bringing people together and recording in the sort of Radio 4 kind of way. So for these really fantastic academics and writers and screenwriters to give up their busy time for free and to contribute to this, it's, yeah, it's it's absolutely fantastic. And I, I thank them very much. Great. Yeah, absolutely. What a what a treat. Um, interesting what you had said there about the the radio fullness in the studio, I think we'll probably come back to that because I think that the the unique sonic properties of the episode are are, are kind of something worth chewing over uh, before we do any of that because I do have some questions about about it all. It's, yeah, just to kind of say how much I enjoyed listening to it and how much I've enjoyed listening to it kind of come together. I think it's a remarkable piece of work. It epitomises what you've been working on in terms of, podcasting and your interest in film podcasting and the, the potentialities of podcasting and cinema and how they come together. I think it's it's a really deep and critical piece of work that really showcases what is possible in this medium, which I know we've both been very interested and excited about, but even more so than probably knowing sounds, which was, you know, sort of several things at once as a very early idea. This feels like a much more coherent and kind of focused piece of work in terms of imagining what a film essay in a podcast form uh, can be so yeah congratulations uh, on that piece of work yeah thanks man and, f- and thanks for the uh, yeah the continued support to uh, to to get it out really and you know because obviously juggling around with the episodes and wh- where things are going but it just came I think it's just come together a, a nice place right now and uh, you know maybe with I don't want to go off on one about how what's happening in the world right now but it's something I think hopefully that maybe will people can 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 put on and listen to and and obviously the, there's a sort of in-depth aspect to it that's quite academic but I think just enjoying listening to some of the voices and people talk about what those voices are doing is always a nice thing to do so hopefully people will enjoy that aspect of it and yeah I mean I was just listening to a podcast the other day that was the host was kind of talking about the relationship between art and criticism and was kind of arguing that you need to get your brain into different spaces you almost have to let go of your critical self in order to be an artist because if you take your criticism into your art, then you're not free to sort of engage in a in a practice that, that can be open to have an experimental or a flow to it. You know, the, the criticism can bog down what you're trying to do. But it's interesting because I, I find it very difficult to consider myself an artist in any, any way, shape or form. And even in the context of practice-led research, if we put it into that academic context, 
that relationship to to academia and what I generally do if I'm say writing a journal article is always difficult but I think yeah this comes quite close to what I was aiming for in trying to produce something that had a kind of cinematic immersiveness but without the images of course but then was underpinned by this this sort of analytical framework and and one of the you know the difficulties but also the interesting parts of it was stitching together what everybody brought because I didn't give really a prescribed remit to everybody. It was just what interests you about the idea of the cinematic voice. And people just took their cue and ran with that, I think. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to there's a lot to unpack there in that, that short burst. But I think that the form, it feels really, really important. You know, sort of you mentioned about kind of like not a studio and that everyone's kind of doing different things in terms of content. The fact they're also doing different things in terms of how they're recording it and that while, yeah, kind of a pleasurable sonic experience is is something that's really really important in the podcast the fact that it feels different to a radio documentary about the cinematic voice feels really important and i think that that invitation to collaborate and that invitation to contribute and that the remit is open is is really important in terms of what a podcast can do that radio can't you know and i think that it feels like a a journey that you've really really marshaled really well I think the fact that you've done it the way you have which is to respond to to kind of set a very brief brief and then respond to the contributions and kind of see what what people's ideas are and and then kind of link that to your own interest and your own research throughout I think is really really smart and I think it works really really well and makes it feel like something that you wouldn't hear in any other place which is an artistic piece of work you know I think that it feels like an artistic piece of work in the way that a lot of really great criticism does. We, and we talked about this at length, but so much criticism that I love feels like a kind of artistic exploration of a text or of a filmmaker or of a set of ideas that where the, the, the critic is using the potential of language and the potential to conjure through language kind of feelings and emotions and uh, a kind of resonance with audiences um, that is not necessarily about fact or about right or wrong but it's about responding through the form to a piece of work and then sharing that with people to respond again through listening or through reading and that's really exciting you know and I I was reading a the Saul, uh, the Saul Bellow book that you bought me and he talks about the idea about particularly in terms of comic writing that where's the freedom to just let go and that more and more now that feels particularly resonant to comedy but I kind of understand that impulse to say well you can't be critical in the act of creation. But also I think that a lot of the artists I really love and a lot of the filmmakers I really love are critical in their work. And I think if you're critical between creations, then that's going to bleed in in some way and how you think about it is going to be kind of fluid in that sense. So, yeah, it, and it's really nice to see you kind of spreading your wings artistically and creatively through the podcast form rather than just writing about it, you know. And it feels like a lot would be lost if it, the approach was fitting it into a pre-existing form like radio or even uh, an academic journal or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I am thinking about sort of whether this can go on to being maybe a video essay. But again, I'm, I'm kind of in, I'm not in two minds about whether I want to do that. I think it would be an interesting thing to try to bring images back, but but not mess around with the sound track or, or the way that it's been put together so almost like the images would then have to be driven by the sound because I think if I recut it it may lose that sense of of the voice and the orality being the central component 
Yeah, because you're back to privileging the image when the whole point of it is about isolating and locating the voice and understanding cinema through that sonic apparatus, which I think is is what's so refreshing about listening to so many different points of view and perspectives and realising how much people take on what the voice is doing in cinema. And this has been a chance to really investigate that in a way that's probably unconscious a lot of the time. Yeah. And how did you feel about um, yourself, the, the way I cut your dialogue? Obviously, I said to you, oh, I've, I've cut one or two things and then so it can fit into the into the form that, that I saw, if you see what I mean. Yeah, well, I, and it wasn't the bit that I necessarily thought that you would cut. Um, <laughs> I thought you'd take out my Dick Tracy reference. Um, normally, when I bring up Dick Tracy, that's people's first response is to deny all knowledge. <laughs> but um, no, but I, I think what was interesting was, which is why I think editing is so important just as a as a general rule was, you know, when you sort of said that, I was kind of listening to what it was. And then the majority of it was was an, uh, was an ending that I'd I'd written, which in the time of writing it and recording it, I thought I needed because, again, my my sense of the whole piece was not there because I'm contributing to something and I'm trying to create something which I think does a lot of does does a lot of things at once. And I think with a lot of writing, you're kind of always overthinking or overwriting sometimes, which is why you need an editor who's going to go in and say, no, you don't need that. And as soon as I heard how you'd cut it, but also how you'd intercut what I'd said with the dialogue clips and the the soundtrack, the ending that you'd found in it made much more sense, which I think was great. And I was like, yeah, I don't need that at the end. You know, it worked much better through your editing. And I think that's that's something that more and more is being ignored, which is why it's in terms of podcasting, I think the fact that we edit it and we think like editors on the podcast is is really important. And I think in podcasting, it's as important as it is in writing to a certain degree, because you do want the freedom and you do want the the sense of spontaneity and the sense that it feels unlike writing, but also it's still important to make it a pleasurable experience and one that doesn't feel too long or too kind of, it goes too tangential sometimes. I think that in the right context, you definitely need to to harness that. And I think you did that really well. I enjoyed the the chance to do something audio that was different to what we normally do, which is converse and not worry too much about the delivery. And that, that was something that I was interested in terms of how you approached it as well, because you took a very different kind of sonic approach to how you actually deliver your your spoken word than you do normally on the podcast. Yeah, I'm still not 100% sure whether that works. You know what I mean? My critical self is like, you know, I don't know whether it sounds a little bit too monotone. I'm not a voiceover artist, so it was a case, I think, of just trying to slow down and even lower my voice a little bit because I think I do speak with passion when I'm, when I'm speaking about films and, and, and everything, really, on, on the podcast. And, uh, and I think that just sort of tempering that in order to deliver clearly, and I was very conscious that I wanted to get an absolutely clean recording of my bits in between because I think that that gave almost a sort of I don't know what the word is maybe a benchmark like an anchoring point for everybody else's voice because there's so many voices on there not just the film voices but the contributors voices as well and I think that's one of the strong suits about it is that everybody's got an interesting voice on there and also not just an interesting sound of the voice but their their diction, their delivery. Say, for example, somebody like Catherine Wheatley is a very academic, high, a high level of depth in her analysis, lots of references, very philosophical. And then move to Mark Kermode, who's somebody who's, you know, absolutely at the forefront of media, 
broadcast journalism and film criticism and talks in that way and just delivered that fair play to him just I think off the top of his head because he's got that information and that knowledge about the exorcist particularly at his fingertips yeah and you are setting up a different sonic space you know which I think is is your which is important you're you're letting the audience know that this is not what we would normally do on an episode it's it's a different thing which I think is the same as what we do when we do a live thing we probably don't realize it as much but I'm sure I'm sure there is a difference between how we introduce an episode live to how we do our kind of chats which I think is it was really yeah it was just just fascinating to to hear you know when I heard the cut I was like oh yeah this is this is not just you nattering about film like there's it, it feels different which was nice and yeah, and I think you, it does set the tone for for what comes. I think that the, I don't think it's monotone. I think it's, I think it's coherent. I think it sets a, the right level of of pace, the right level of, it sets the right level for the experience mm. of what comes after. Um, yeah, yeah, which is which is really good. I was really uh, I was really tempted to play about with the uh, with the software and give myself some kind of like you know Darth Vaderish uh, echo or something like that, but I I resisted that temptation. Um, yeah, well, which is again kind of I think when you're talking about the voice and kind of playing around with the voice as a sound, I think that's, that's probably is quite tempting, isn't it? Yeah. So I'm yeah, glad, yeah. You didn't. And, glad you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> no, me too at the end, but yeah, I mean, it was just, just lovely to have those different kind of voices and, and yeah. And obviously having Farshid's contribution on uh, Kiristami, that was the main difficult point, I think in terms of does that work sonically only because he's pointing to an effect that he describes it very well, but it's very difficult to really have a sense of it and you're, unless you're looking at, at the screen and you understand what the the disembodied voice, the acousmetra and how it works, you know, unless you can kind of see that being set up in the frame. So I don't know, again, that that's the other the other bit that maybe is would lend itself maybe more to a video essay. Yeah, see I, I would I think you should resist that. Okay. Because I think that what it does is unique and really quite special in the sense that, that I know that film I know that film really well, but the fact that when he's talking about it and then you, you have the clips I can't understand what's being said kind of increases the cinematic imaginary in my own head and I, I kind of I am relying on the memories of seeing the film. A film which is always about what's heard and not seen. You know, there's so much that that's not seen. It's such a beautiful piece of work. And I think that it really typifies what the whole episode is about, which is about what we do in our relationship to the sounds that we hear in cinema and how isolating that brings about a different response in us. And I just thought it was really, yeah, I, what it brought to mind was was how the best criticism that I love, and I mean the best in terms of my kind of one of my favourite things about criticism is, is reading and increasingly listening to people talk or write about films I haven't seen and describe them on the page or in this case through sound and and imagine what what that experience is going to be like and then seeking out the experience for myself and when I watch it carrying the unfolding experience of seeing it but also tapping into that feeling I had when I read someone talk so beautifully and eloquently or passionately about it and I think that that's such an exciting thing um, that reminds me of kind of really getting into cinema where so much of what excites you is what you read, you know, or what you hear someone talk about. And we've talked about things like movie drone a lot, you know, but just knowing that you were going to hear Alex Cox talk or Mark Cousins later on talk about the film and 
how their voice inspired an excitement to then watch the thing, I think, is is increasingly lost, I think. And I think that's what that's what's beautiful about this episode and this contribution in particular is it, it it's completely of itself. That if you if you did have the images with it, I wonder what would be lost. And I think that's the, the case for all of them. What because this is about what's almost all lost anyway, because people think so visually in terms of cinema. Mm. Yeah. I'm just maybe thinking about a sort of, you know, six months down the road, a further life for this when with my academic hat on, where does it, you know what I mean? Because it's it's still so hard to put things into an academic context that are sound only. You yeah, you've got to milk it. You've got to milk your outputs. Exactly. You've got to milk your outputs for sure. And, it, and it's interesting you said that because it's like one of the things that I got from it, just myself listening to the, the analysis was Jennifer O'Meara's on Anomalisa. I mean, that gave that, film a whole new dimension for me which is really interesting that sense of the how the voice was being almost used as a as a way that the male character was trying to control the female character and how how the the sort of Kaufman-esque script was playing with that a little bit yeah absolutely that was a yeah lots of great reframing of of films that you kind of take are operating on one level and then that that kind of criticism and scholarship which brings a new a new reading on it and the last thing I wanted to to raise was just how pleasurable it was to hear Max von Sydow's voice in the Mark Commode segment and be reminded of the other voices in that sequence. And remembering and being reminded of Mr. Edie's McCambridge's performance is, is just kind of amazing. But also how von Sydow's voice brings such a gravitas and such a kind of authority and such a a faith to it that the scene is just kind of elevated again and I'm not sure it works without him being cast to do that to do that side of it you know which is about his his filmography and and, and our understanding of von Sydow but also that iconic voice and just a reminder of of just one of the iconic voices of cinema and just how powerful it is to hear him him kind of speak yeah it it is very much a sort of sense that his voice is so resonant through his his other films and the characters he's played in other films that gives him that sense of he he definitely could be a, a priest who's an exorcist, you know what I mean? But then the accent as well, just and the the sort of tone of it, is almost sort of doing battle with the voice of of McCambridge. So there's a sort of vocal kind of tension between the two that I think just just comes out in that little that little clip towards the end, particularly. Yeah, and I think that interplay between the three voices, you know, mm. and how Karras the, as well, like, yeah, yeah, Karras as well, yeah, and like you say, how that because the voices are ultimately doing battle, you know, and it, it comes through the voice, doesn't it? Like everything, because it's you remember that the scene it's not a physical scene in the traditional sense, you know, they're not they're not physically wrestling, they're vocally wrestling, and it's the words and how the words delivered and and the strength of the belief that comes through the voice is so is so important, and also a reminder which you kind of touch on in the essay, which is the voice as a sound, you know, and, and what, how those three sounds are playing together as not just as voices and not just as vehicles for dialogue, but as sounds, which are telling us about Karras's belief, von Sydow's belief, and then and, and obviously the voice inside uh, inside Regan and, and what that believes and how, how, how that's being put across. And I think, again, a reminder that the great filmmakers understand everything about what they're doing and maybe it's not conscious and maybe it is an automatic thing but I think that at some level Friedkin knows when he hears the actors that that matters you know that, that, that it's not you know because you, you you could cast other people that might give the same physical um, and the same visual sense but it's got to be in the voice as well and I think that 
on a certain level, the, the great filmmakers know what they're doing in terms of voices. I mean, maybe that's the, the one thing that's come out of this, almost like a central argument, maybe is the wrong word, but like a takeaway is that the interplay b- between voices is as important as anything else. Because if you look at the other the other three sections that we, we haven't mentioned so far is, if you look at Laura's, the interplay is there between Tilda Swinton and Tom Hiddleston. And, and you mentioned as well that Laura actually sounds like Tilda Swinton. Which yeah, is, she sounds really like Tilda Swinton, which just adds such a, an amazing yeah. dimension to it. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? And then the, In the Heat of the Night, of course, is all about the interplay and the sort of racial undercurrents of that interplay. And then interestingly, Ian's piece on, on Amy Mann's section in, Mag- in Magnolia is about interplay between diegetic and non-diegetic as a device. So it's all kind of like interplay of voices is is fundamental there, I think. Is that something that you kind of knew or thought about before in terms of what what kind of themes might emerge? You know, like how much of what you wrote came pre the episode or how much of it was shaped by the actual process of editing and sort of discovering what what people was, were thinking in terms of the voice? The introduction was was kind of like the hardest part in terms of how am I going to set this up and frame this? I mean, there was a temptation to just go straight into the first one and say, this is a cinematologist podcast, the cinematic voice and straight in. I felt that that maybe a little bit of context was required. And I always knew I wanted to talk about the idea of synchronization of the voice post sound cinema, basically, and and how that's kind of taken for granted. But then if you look at the way that the the voice is used in interesting ways, a lot of it is about this disembodiedness or about the way that synchronization is played with in some way, shape or form. But when I'd heard the individual segments, it was just a case of how do they fit together. Some of the connecting parts came together a lot later. Like, say, for example, the the connection, say, between the Anomalisa bit and, and Mark Kermode's Exorcist bit. So it's getting from an animated voices to Regan as a character that is both disembodied and, and embodied at the same time. So... Th- the clips I used there from the idea of of the voice animating character was was one one thing that just came out of the fact that I needed to get from one part to the other and that just seemed to make sense. And then at the very end with William Brown's segment, that was just kind of like, I thought a beautiful, humorous finishing point that I, I just sort of, oh yeah, that's going to go at the end. That's going to finish it all off and leave it alone kind of thing. Yeah, it works because of all the different types of ideas that have come in and, you know, it's as as expected from from William, kind of really thoughtful um, <laughs> yeah. and kind of intellectually stimulating piece, but it's also playful. Yeah, know, self-referential and, it, and ironic as well. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, so do you see this as the start of something? You know, because th- we both know that no piece of work is ever going to be definitive on the cinematic voice. And I think what's so great about this piece of work is it doesn't feel like you're ever trying to do that. Yeah. You know, it feels like a genuine, organic and instinctual and I mean that in the in the in a positive sense of like you know finding ideas as they come along, in regards to this idea of the cinematic voice. But do you see this as something that you'll kind of pursue more, not just in terms of this as an output, but just some of the things that you might have got excited about from that have come up through the process of doing it? Well, there's two aspects to that question. One is that this is fitting into the work that's coming out. I've got a piece coming out um, about film podcasts and and how they work and why they work. And it's almost kind of like a taxonomy of the film podcast, different types. And it wrestles with the, the concept of the audio cinematic. Can a cinematic experience be audio only? And if it can, what is that? What What constitutes that? But then also, I think just in terms of work on the podcast... I think maybe one episode a year or if I could find the time one episode a season where 
it does take this much more produced format and whether it's sort of audio essay style or, or just written or maybe even you know maybe we can talk about this in the future doing something that's more even dramatic that we're even performing to a to an even more greater extent is something I think would be would be interesting and yeah I'm also interested in doing something on British film critics in academia so obviously sadly um, Victor Perkins passed away and then there was other film critics I think that were formative of film studies in the UK in the 50s 60s and 70s that have influenced a lot of the people that are you know teaching film theory right now and I think as a podcast or even a series that looks back at their work if I could get the funding for that then that would be something that really interests me exciting well yeah I for one um yeah on board and I think what was interesting yeah it's kind of just the process has made me think about dropping segments into our our regular kind of episodes you know so one of the things that I'm going to do for one of the upcoming episodes is you know when I sort of review the the BFI stuff yeah you know, actually kind of record little segments. So, yeah, so we sure. can sort of, you know, nip off for two minutes about a yeah. film that's written and recorded. Again, sure. just to give a different type of experience to listeners and make it feel less like, sometimes I feel like, oh, I have to kind of talk about this because I've been given a free Blu-ray, but I do want to talk about it. But whether it always feels like an aside, you know, and I think that this is this has been a really good experience of, in terms of listening to it come together to think about, yeah, actually, that there is so much more that we could be doing in terms of the audio experience for listeners and for ourselves in terms of writing and kind of creating material which i think is is worth exploring so yeah i'm really excited about about the next generation of uh, the cinematologist so yeah well well done on on this episode which has been an absolute joy and uh, hopefully our uh, our listeners feel the same thank you if they've gotten this far over two hours you are true uh, stalwarts of the cinematologist podcast so we thank you if you're still listening at this point um yeah we'll sign off there without too much of a of a bump i think because uh, obviously it's been a big episode everybody knows where to contact us on uh, social media we'll have a new episode coming out maybe in 10 days two weeks time where i interview blake howard and then it will be our hundredth, and uh, yeah, we have some exciting stuff coming up for that. But until until we get to that, uh, Neil, lovely to talk to you as, as always, and thanks so much for the uh, support for this. Absolute pleasure. Yep, it's been a real joy, uh, kind of going with you on this journey. So yeah, look forward to the next part. Great. Thanks very much. Thanks once again to our audience for the continued support. We look forward to catching up with you on social media or wherever wherever it might be. Please, everyone, stay safe. This has been the Cinematologist Podcast. Thanks for listening. Oh